Welcome once again to Devotional. This is Pastor Ariel and we are on lesson number four entitled When Alone for April 20th to the 26th for 2019. Well, last week we had finished with death <laughs> and this whole week we get to look at being alone. Not the most cheerful lesson we may think, but I, as I mulled over and studied it, I realized it is, the lesson is not tr trying to get us to get all depressed about you know the stages in our lives when we experience loneliness, but rather being proactive about it. Now, there are many resources that I want to make you aware that will be available in the podcast description from videos of missions to the lesson and many other things that I think will be helpful for you from reading uh, Bible reading plans, Bible apps, etc. Uh, I want to empower you to have all the tools possible so that your devotional life can be equipped so that you're not there just floundering, wondering what to do. And of course, I want you to develop a habit of using our Sabbath School quarterly. And this quarter is amazing. It totally caught me off guard. I wasn't sure what the, the lesson was going to really be focusing because of the diverse uh, themes and topics, but it is an awesome lesson. I hope you will take the time to use these links. There's even a uh, an app, a Sabbath School app, that has the entire Sabbath School lesson word for word in audio. And it's a guy with a British or Australian accent, so it sounds really cool. <laughs> I don't know about a Spanish accent, but this accent I like. And so I think it will be a good resource for you if you're driving, if you don't have time to read. And the, the, the cool thing that I appreciate is that he doesn't just give you the Bible references. He reads to you all the Bible verses that we're supposed to be reading anyways. So anyways, I hope that doesn't become a, <laughs> a crutch, but rather an incentive to use the app and then go back and study it. It really will help uh, go over the lesson a couple of times so that we can begin to see things beyond the surface. And that's what happened to me this week. I realized that this lesson could have also been entitled simply The Single Life, a more positive kind of, uh, to, uh, you know, angle or, or, or uh, description. Um, and the lesson actually focuses on four general groups of single individuals in the church. Um, being single does not mean being alone. And that's what I mean that the single life, it has a more positive tone to it than when being alone. And uh, that's okay. I mean, the, the lesson is what it is. But as I study the lesson, that I feel is what it could have been entitled because it ended up becoming a, a call to action for me. And I hope it does for you as well. So here are the four general groups that the lesson singles out. No pun intended. <laughs> the number one is widowers and widows. The second one are divorced individuals. Third are spiritual widows. And then the last one are individuals that are single on purpose. And the lesson doesn't have that, doesn't have those individuals in that specific order. I just, when I started writing my notes, that's the order that I put them. And I try to look at the Bible for some simple uh, guidance, simple uh, principles of how to relate to when we find ourselves in those situations. And we're going to start with individuals that find themselves without their life partner. It doesn't have to be old people either. This happened in Elkwood Church. We have some widows and widowers that are quite young. So in the Bible, the Bible addresses widows and widowers with this perspective. These individuals are single because of sin. And because of sin, we have death. So it's not a punishment. It's not something that they have brought upon themselves. It's not a consequence to their behaviors. It's just simply simply something that happens on planet Earth because of sin. And 
Um, there's two single individuals that I want to focus on. Uh, the first one is found in Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. And I'm going to read to you this person. You may have guessed already. The book of Genesis is dominated by this individual over many chapters. Abraham. Now, this is what Abraham, uh, the Bible says about Abraham in Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. Now, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. The, the Lord healed Abraham at his old age. Um, it wasn't just Isaac that Abraham produced. He produced many other children, but not through Sarah. Sarah died and Abraham became a widower. Why am I going here? Because um, I've seen some Christians that want to make their experience the rule of thumb for everybody else. And if you are a widow and you feel that, you know, you shouldn't marry, then that is your choice. But the Bible does allow for marriage after a companion has died. Father the Abraham, the, the father of faith, Abraham, he remarried after he became a widow, a widower when Sarah passed away. The other individual that I want to look at is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Luke chapter 2 and verse 36. And it says this, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So here we have two individuals, godly individuals. Abraham also was a prophet. They are both experiencing becoming either a widower or a widow. One chooses to marry. The other one chooses not to. And the Bible is okay with either one. And we, we have to respect people's choices. When someone loses their life partner, let us not become busybodies and saying, certainly they need someone else. Maybe they don't. Maybe like Anna, they're, they're, they've had that experience, it's been beautiful, and they are satisfied. And now, like Anna, they want to dedicate the rest of their time to serve the Lord. Or like Abraham, as Sarah passed away, he grieved, he mourned, he healed, and he found someone else to continue this life journey on planet Earth. And heaven approves with either one of these. So just wanted to put that out there that the Bible does not have a prescription of either widows or widowers have to stay unmarried or that they have to get married. It's a personal choice derived from conviction of what their experience requires or what they feel they want to do for the Lord. Um, the, the next one I struggle with, the divorced, divorced ones, because... You know, I, I went through the whole Bible in my mind, trying to think of a Bible character in the Old Testament and the New, of those of, of God's people that were divorced. And you can send me a message if you can think of one, find one. But I couldn't think of anyone except one. When I surveyed the entirety of the Old Testament, there's only one person that the Bible explicitly says got a divorce. And you know who that person was? God. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. God, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read that for you. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8. Like I said, I'm not saying this is dogma. I'm not going to make a, a Bible teaching out of this. Uh, and certainly, if you can share a verse with me, I would be happy. It will edify me. But when I looked at the scriptures, I just had a hard time finding it. And here it is, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. 
And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her written a, a certificate of divorce. Of course, God is using figurative language, but he's evoking the, the principles that he had given in the book of Leviticus regarding divorce. Divorce, the, the way out of a marriage was, or the, the, you had the opportunity or the choice to do this, is if the other person committed adultery, unfaithfulness. And God is saying, if we were a man and a woman married to each other, I could divorce you and I have divorced you. It breaks my heart to see how you have destroyed this marriage. And I'm going to honor your choice. Do I call? Do I pled? Do I forgave? Do I gave multiple opportunities? You have broken my heart and you have revealed to me you have no interest whatsoever in a committed long-term relationship exclusively with me. Now, why, why do I even go here? And I began to ask the Lord, Father, I, I've asked you for direction. Why are we going here? Because what I think for me personally, what I've discovered is this can be the most encouraging thing, principle that we can find in the Bible in that God understands individuals that go through this experience. I, I thought of, you know, Job, Abraham, Enoch, even David. He, David understands what it feels like to commit adultery, to commit murder. <laughs> I don't want to know how that feels like, but should I go through a divorce? The, the one thing, I mean, we, for whatever reason, we, we have no problems talking about David and, you know, Uriah and Bathsheba, but divorce? Our church, the Christian church, the Adventist church, has struggled relating with people that go through that experience, yet the Bible says God understands. God knows the heartache. God knows the wounds that this experience breaks, this staring apart of two individuals that were at one time one and committed. So if you are divorced, God understands your heart. And you can take comfort in that your tears and your frustrations and your anger and all these emotions, you read the Old Testament, you see that God expresses those same sentiments as we have when we go through this painful experience. You know, it, it takes someone that has gone through an experience to be able to understand and help someone else that has gone through that experience. And God has written this, this down in this way so that he knows that when his people will go through this painful experience because of sin, because of sin, they could be assured God understands. Isn't that what the book of Hebrews chapter 7 says? That we have a Savior that understands that he, he can empathize and sympathize with our infirmities. He knows what it feels like to go through these experiences of ruptured relationships and certainly his grace can help and heal. And divorce happens in all ages and demographics, by the way, there's just not one group that is more at risk than others. It, it, we'll talk, we don't have, I don't want to focus on that on this lesson. I just want you to take that away from, from this lesson that God understands. As far as I know, in the Old Testament, he is the only person that is listed explicitly going through a divorce. Spiritual widows is the next group that the lesson focuses on. And these individuals are unique. They're not single because their spouse has died physically. They are single because their spouse is dead spiritually. They are still dead in trespasses and sins, and they refuse to come to the life giver. They've been invited. 
that you are being pled with. But there are many reasons. It's complicated. There's just not one formula as to why people go through this. But again, I want us to go to the Bible. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. The Bible is replete with stories that can give us hope and encouragement. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Are there other spiritual widows or widowers in the scriptures? And I believe that Acts chapter 16, verse 1 mentions at least one. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So, though it is not necessarily explicit, the but right there places a contrast. Timothy grew up in a home in which his mom was a Jewish and a believer, but his father was Greek. And I can fill in the blanks and not a believer. Uh, Eunice, Timothy's mother, grew up in a divided home in which she longed to share spiritual joys, spiritual experiences with her husband, but he refused to let go of the pantheon of zoos and Greek mythology. He refused to get out of his man cave. He refused to get out of his um, secular priorities and yield his heart to the convicting evidence that here was a God working in the lives of his wife, and not just his wife, but his son, Timothy. In the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy, um, he says, I am mindful of this sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it's in you as well. You know, this story for me is extremely tender and significant. God empowers and God's, God provides special grace for such homes like this. And if you are a mother or a wife in this situation, because Unicism is a mother, you can really know that heaven understands and you are not alone. And as you seek to be committed to Jesus, you have to entrust the decision of your husband to the realities the same Holy Spirit that worked in your heart that led you to truth, conviction, and responses is the same Holy Spirit that is working upon your husband. And that's your mission field, not to put in a headlock, not to bring, you know, by force and manipulation, but through prayer and fasting. You know, as I'm reading through the Gospels, I've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, my morning devotions, and I have a question mark that I still haven't processed fully, but there is an instance in which the disciples couldn't cast out the demon of this young man, this young boy, his son. And the father is saying, you know, I went to your disciples, they couldn't do it. And Jesus commands the demon out. And of course, the, the, the son is healed. The disciples come afterwards and ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast this demon out, this evil spirit? Jesus responds, that's the response that I'm still with my, my head scratching. Jesus says, this kind doesn't go out, but by prayer and fasting. Now, Jesus is not advocating superstition or magic. Jesus is advocating a heart searching in which we come to him and shed all our tactics, all our strategies. I know how I'm going to get my husband to come. I know how I'm going to get my wife to come. No, you don't. Because Ephesians chapter 6 says that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We are not wrestling against humans. Our, our warfare is now spiritual. The moment you become a believer, a Christian, someone that is in allegiance with Jesus, 
you have declared war on the prince of this world and he will do all he can to keep his subjects under his power and your husband or your wife will not yield unless you intercede and even then you have to realize just like you made a free choice though under conviction though under the conviction and the revelation of truth like you've never seen before made attractive and creating longings and desires within you you still could have said no and your husband or your wife may do the same but no matter what the outcome may be of your spouse the Bible offers us hope in this story. Because Acts 16, all it mentions is that this is a divided home. Eunice was a Jewish and a believer. The husband was Greek. But it doesn't tell us much about the outcome, what happened. But in Timothy, we see that Eunice chose faithfulness and she found some support, just like we've been, when we're talking a little bit later in this podcast, His, her, her mom. So spiritual families need to uh, support and encourage one another on a regular daily basis. Eunice and his, the grandmother Lois supported one another so that that genuine faith could thrive, grow, and be sustained in the long term. And what was the outcome? The children were affected. Some individuals are spiritual widows or widowers in a home that there are no children. It doesn't make it, I don't think it makes it necessarily easier but there is like an additional burden if there are children in the mix because now the dynamic becomes a bit more complex. The, the, the spouse that is an unbeliever has no you know, bearings on time, on Sabbath, on things that are holy, things of moral nature. Does, doesn't necessarily mean that they're degenerate. It just means that it's different. The convictions are different, the worldview is different, and thus the way they wanna raise their children requires prayer, and like I said, I'm still scratching my head, but even though I may not fully understand, I don't have to understand everything to practice it. And so there's an appeal here. Have you fasted for your spouse? Not, you know, thinking that fasting is going to twist God's arm. If you're not, actually, providentially, uh, Elder John Tromley and I, in the Oakwood Connect po podcast that we're making for our Oakwood Church, you can go to iTunes, Spotify, it's probably, probably like in 10 different platforms. So if you just look for Oakwood Connect, you'll see the, the Oakwood Church logo um, and you'll be able to identify it. We just finished recording the last podcast on fasting. So about 40 minutes of developing that theme. So I'm just gonna lead, direct you in that direction to look at that podcast. But right now I'm just inviting you, would you consider doing that? And applying the principles that we speak of in that podcast. The last one, the last group of singles that we have are individuals that are single by choice. These individuals have decided, hey, I'm content, I'm happy, I can, um, you know, restrain. I, I don't feel that sexual urges are that powerful within me, and I, I can manage them. Like Paul says, I'm not going to be burning, I'm going to be okay. I've learned to find contentment, satisfaction, and joy in other activities of life. And so, therefore, or individuals that have lived very, you know, bad lives in the past that they realize, um, I've done enough of that. I want to dedicate the rest of my life exclusively for the Lord. And that is okay too. But you know, I placed a question mark. Single by choice. There are, there may be some young people that have chosen that path. But I would venture to say that there are not that many. Yet, I believe that there are several young adults in our church that are single for lack of uh, available potential partners. And because of the lack of potential available partners, there's great temptation 
for our young adults, our professional young adults, individuals that because of the culture, because of this shift in our economics, they've had to wait, postpone looking for companions. And so they're, they've gone up in their academics. You know, they've not just finished a bachelor's, maybe a ba master's, maybe a PhD, um, or for whatever other reasons, just busy working, illness, family needs, whatever. And, or they just belong to a church <laughs> where they are the youngest person and they are in their 30s. And there are no one else around that age group of the opposite sex. And so I put there a question mark. And we have Paul, Timothy, John the Baptist, even the Apostle John, it doesn't mention him being married. He was a young uh, apostle. And there's no mention of a wife. Maybe he decided from his youth to just give himself completely to Jesus and the mission. But whether it was because of lack of compatible partners, partners that are spiritual, there is now this epidemic of single young adults that some may choose to stay that way intentionally. Others are struggling and struggling with loneliness because there are no matches around. And the temptation, of course, is, hey, there's a coworker, she's cute, she doesn't have really interested in church, or there's another friend from college or from the neighborhood or from, you know, dating sites. And though he's not Christian, he's not an Adventist, hey, it's better to be with someone than to burn, right? Wrong. Marriage is not the cure for loneliness. If anything, it can, it, it can enhance it. And maybe that's a bad word. It can make it worse. <laughs> it can make you more lonely because now you live with someone that you have no compatibility with, no common aspirations, no big common worldview. And you want to go right and the other person wants to go left and you're alone though you're married. So as a church, what can we do? And how can we relate to these things? We don't want to simply say, well, that's the problem. See you next week, right? How can we relate to this need of single people? People that are single because they're, they lost their loved ones because of death. People that are single because of divorce. People that are single spiritually because their spouse, their husband or their wife refuses to come to church or single because there's lack of potential partners in the church. What can the church do? We will talk about that when we come right back. So, how can the church relate to these four groups of individuals experiencing singleness in, or being single in these, these various phases of life? They're all at risk, of course, of experiencing a loneliness that can be toxic, that is not good. So how can a church relate? I'm gonna read one verse out of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 is a verse that I've memorized. Um, that if, because I memorized it, man, there's, there's a lot of juicy stuff here, a lot of good stuff, and it applies directly to the dilemma that our churches have today. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 say, um, it says this, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 25 is a clincher, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, this gathering ourselves together, this assembling ourselves together, 
Paul is encouraging us to not just do it on a weekend basis, on a three hours on Sabbath morning basis, because I'm going to ask you, is this enough? With the, will the three, maybe four hours that we spend on Sabbath morning, counting Sabbath school, right? The reality is about three. Those three hours, once a week, would that be sufficient to, you know, affect and counteract this tsunami of loneliness that our society is just experiencing? Is three hours a week enough? So I, I, I would tend to say no. And I don't know what you would say. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But I am pretty convinced that three hours a week, barely. And this is not three hours a week hanging out. This is three hours a week sitting in a class, maybe saying something. And then another hour or so sitting in a big place, surrounded by people where no one is really talking to each other. Maybe there's like a five minute, 10 minute interim in which we shake hands, hug, ha, 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 yap a little bit. But that's it. Is that enough? Because after that, we sit and listen to one person up front. Is that enough? How much interaction does take place on Sabbath morning? And again, the question, is that enough? I would contend that it is not. And so we'll say, well, we have concerts, right? That's, we have concerts. Concerts are not social events. You sit and you're, you're not talking, you're listening. You will be blessed, the music will be great, but it is not a place where social engagement takes place. You can have a little bit of fellowship afterwards, but what, 30 minutes? Or you want to sp spend the whole hour after a concert yapping, talking, and, 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 and having fellowship? Maybe with people that you know, but individuals that are divorced, individuals that are widows, individuals that, that are spiritual widows, these are unique situations. And even individuals that may not find, have found a compatible partner. Are these sufficient elements, tools, resources that a church provides that can remedy, that can retain these individuals because the temptation is to go out and try to uh, deal with this loneliness elsewhere. How to fill these holes in my life somewhere else. The spouse that is in, in a spiritual widow situation or widower, they may end up giving in because they're tired of being lonely. A church that does not provide a strong social support places these four groups at great risk of backsliding, disappearing, falling to the cracks, and everybody's not even sure why it happened. Well, now we know. Now we know. And the question, is it enough to have concerts and, you know, once a year is social or a church picnic? Is that enough? You know, I'm going to read to you two passages from uh, the book of Acts again. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. The book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Um, in relationship to this question, is that enough? Is that enough? Um, Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of God, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there's a lot said there, but for the context of this question, is it enough? How often did the early church meet together? How often was there interaction in the church or in people's homes? The Bible says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple 
and breaking bread from house to house. The other verse that I want to read is Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Acts chapter, chapter 5, verse 42 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. How often did the early church connect? How frequently? Why? Because of people like Eunice, who she was a Jewish and a believer, but her husband was a Greek who was not a believer because of these divided homes, because Christianity would bring about many spiritual widowers and widows. Trust me, not every couple joined together. Many couples found themselves with a divided home. Um, so the church became crucial to have this fellowship to fill these spaces. There were martyrs. There were people that were killed because of the faith, leaving widows or widowers, leaving orphans. The church became the center, the social center for these individuals. And, you know, it, it, it calls us, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, a call to action. This podcast, this lesson, the way the Lord put it together, convicts, convicts me and I'm praying that it will lead you to see that this is a call to action, lowliness. But these four groups is calling the church to action to foster and somehow promote a church-centered culture. It's not just about having more socials. It's not just about, a ha about having pizza on Friday nights or something like that. Those are all good things, but a culture of church-centeredness, church not church-event-centeredness, not church-program-centeredness, church. And by church, it's not just the building, but the people in the building, right? Remember the little uh, jingle that we teach children to do with their little hands? They, they clasp them together and then they put their two index fingers together. Here's the church, here's the people. You open the door and here are the programs. This is the church, here's the steeple. You open the door and here are the evangelistic events. Here are the people. A church-centered culture is a people-centered culture. And this is what we had. This is what we have in the book of Acts. So some people will say, Pastor, I mean, we've tried. We tried to create things, but no one, no matter what we do, people don't come out. We do concerts and people don't come out. We do socials and people don't come out. What's going on? What's happening, Pastor? We have individuals that are invested in creating and producing events and putting together. We're trying to create and affect the culture of our, of our church. What's holding us back? I'm going to touch on that on the last and final segment as we conclude this podcast on Relating to Loneliness. Pastor Ariel, we have things on our calendar. We have events. But Pastor, I remember coming to Oakwood and I was with my worship committee. And um, my friends Rob and Beatrice Rissenthaler were wa wondering if they could come and do a concert for us. So I brought it to my worship committee and they were very transparent. And this is something that I've heard all, you know, from other members at Oakwood. Is pastor, it's sometimes embarrassing that we will have nice concerts with good music, but no one comes out. No one comes out. That's why I'm emphasizing a church-centered culture. We have to be intentional. We have to be creative, spiritual, and allow the Holy Spirit to give us a direction in this, in this, um, in this format, in this, in this uh, focus, in this investment of developing a church-centered culture. But you know what? I, I, it's a valid uh, statement. 
the objections that some of us have is not because we're we're being you know rambunctious, rebellious. We don't want to do this or whatever. We're trying to invalidate it. Uh, I believe that they're sincere, Pastor. We've tried. We're trying these things, but we we can barely get enough people once a year. That's why it's a once a year event because if we did it more often, people may come at first, but you know what? It just dwindles down. We will have these things, you know, new, new, the novelty will bring people out, but eventually people will just go back to, and there it is. That's the problem. Today, the church has competition. And I, you know what, even I should, I should scratch out that today from my notes. The church has always had competition. The church today has the same competition it had in the book of Acts. You know, I'm going to... Uh, Say, read to you a verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. This is the competition that the church has always had in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Now today, in the 2019, the church has always had this challenge of competition. Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, summarizes the issue. It's not that the quality of the programs are good or bad. It's not, you know, who is the leader or it, it, that's none. None of that is, is the real issue. Here's the real issue. Jesus puts his finger on the nerve. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I don't think Jesus is limiting this simply to money. I, in fact, I believe he's going way beyond that. I believe that in, in culture, both then and now, and maybe more so now than ever, because of all the technology that we've developed, our greatest treasure is time. Our greatest treasure, your greatest treasure is time. So if we're going to try to create a church-centered culture, the question needs to be answered where is your time because where your time is that's where your heart is because jesus says where your treasure is there your heart will be also so it's not your house it's not your money it's not your career it's your time time is the greatest treasure the greatest commodity you know you possess where do you invest it that tells more of a a church-related culture more than anything, or an other-related culture, whatever that may be. You know, I, I was reading an article this week on this website called CNET. I frequent it. Uh, I'm a techie person, and I'm always looking for either gadgets or software that can help in ministry. So it's something that I'm, I'm hardly being able to keep up with anymore, and so I'm, I don't do it as frequently as I used to. Plus, it's expensive, <laughs> and I have two little girls, so I don't torture myself with things that, oh, man, that would be so cool. But anyways, this week I was at CNET, and apparently there's a big movie coming out um, either this week or next week. And one of the individuals that, wrote, that writes regularly for this um, website, this technology website, expressed that they spent 59 hours, 59, 59, 59 hours binging on movies of this apparent uh, great conglomerate of movies on Marvel, uh, Marvel Universe is what they called it. They, they spent 59 hours in preparation for a movie that is going to be coming out pretty soon. I guess it's all the background stories of the characters. 59 hours where your treasure is, there your heart is also. There's nothing the church could do 
that would convince this person to go to whatever event the church is doing. The angel Gabriel could come down to sing special music and this person would be like, sorry, I'm binging it on 59 hours in preparation for whatever movie is coming out. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And your greatest treasure, no matter what age you are, is your time. In fact, you listening to this podcast is in time investment, right? And some of you may have seen the time frame already that is going to be past 40 minutes. And you're thinking, nah, I'm not going to invest time. Praise God you have. <laughs> I'm glad you have. I hope you've been, you reached to this far. I didn't mean to make it this long. But I believe that all of these things are pertinent to loneliness. I believe that the competition for our hearts, for our treasures of time has incapacitated the church and greatly limited the church in what the church can do to counter this culture of loneliness, of dehumanizing, uh, destroying and obstructing healthy contact between humans, healthy social contact between human beings. The church needs to be that force. You know, in the times of Christ, like I said, you know, it's not today. This is, has always been, this competition has always been present. During the time of Jesus, the apostles, the Roman citizens, the secular society had a mantra. They had a saying, and it became more so um, even after Jesus went back to heaven in, in the ensuing centuries. Right? Rome, Roman citizens would say and cry out to their leaders, give us bread and give us circus. And you might think circus. Well, the circus back then was not the circus that you may think of right now with clowns and elephants and people, you know, spitting fire. The circus back then may have had those elements, but the circus was the, 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 the hub of the entertainment industry, so to speak, where people escaped their boredom. People escaped the humdrum and meaninglessness of their existence and went to the circus to be entertained. And this is my argument and this is my contention. Christians have adopted a culture of entertainment that goes completely against a church-centered culture because your time, your treasure will be where your heart is. And your heart is in front of that rectangular object in your living room or your bedroom. And therefore, you prefer that than the church. The verses that we read in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 5 seem impossible. Pastor, that's impossible. We have no time to do that. But yet, individuals have 59 hours in a very busy, very busy, time-limited society. Individuals are able to carve out 59 hours. Can Christians do the same? It depends where our heart is. You know, there's an old hymn. A Negro spiritual. It's in our hymns, in the Seventh-day Adventist hymnal, is hymn number 305. I'm going to read to you the lyrics. You probably know this. As soon as you hear the lyrics, the melody may come into your mind. The first stanza says, In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus. Dark midnight, just about the break of day, or when I come to die, give me Jesus. And the chorus, the anthem, is give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You may have, you may have all this world. Give me Jesus.
You know what the church struggles filling the voids of these lonely groups in our church? It's because our treasure is elsewhere. Because our hearts and treasures are elsewhere. Our time is elsewhere. We will not come and invest time and allow this church-centered culture to once again dominate our convictions and our worldview. The cure for loneliness is a church-centered life where what we do connects and strengthens us one to another. A church-centered life is where healing and restoration can take place because there's the human touch, a human face. A church-centered life is where we can create joyful memories that will last a lifetime and an eternity. Where is your treasure of time? Where will you choose to put your treasure? Because that's where your heart will be. May our hearts be in the same place Jesus' heart is, fully invested, fully committed in His church. I sincerely hope you received a special blessing from today's episode on devotional. I pray it has inspired you to turn the study of God's Word into a daily habit, as well as using the study tool of our Sabbath School lesson. If you haven't yet subscribed on iTunes or whichever platform you listen in, would you please do so now? This way, you will be notified each time I publish a new episode. It would also mean a lot to me if you would leave a rating and a review of this podcast. You doing this will help others discover the spiritual resource. I would really appreciate this. I would love for you to connect with me through my Facebook page, Devotional Podcast. There's a link in the show's description that will take you there. I will regularly post additional resources there as well. It would be so good to hear what you like and what I could do to make this podcast a bigger blessing for you. Lastly, Would you consider making a monthly 99 cent contribution to this podcast? It would help offset the long-term cost of producing each episode. Thanks again for listening. Look forward to our next time together in the next episode of Devotional. Until then, this is Pastor Ariel inviting you to devote all you are and all you have to our Lord Jesus Christ.